Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a rainy autumn day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to have Sue Lake alongside me on the programme. Sue is the co-owner and director of White Rose Books Cafe, a Yorkshire-based bookshop, cafe and event space. Um, Sue, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Scott. It's lovely to be here. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves as well, Sue. Um, Normally, we dive straight into the subject of leadership on the show and really bring that into focus. But just considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, which has blighted 2020 in the UK, I feel it's appropriate that we start there. Um, It has proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders in all walks of life. But for you, as the owner of a small business, just to what extent has it affected you and your operations? Well, it's affected us massively. Um, It's actually our 25th birthday anniversary this weekend. And I've never had to deal with anything like this in 25 years in business. Um, So we had to close, like many businesses, on close our cafe on the 20th of March and then our shop on the 23rd. So um, it was really a question of working through all the guidance and risk assessments for two and a half months um, working remotely. And then once we could, we were able to start up again um, on the retail side mid-June and then on the cafe hospitality side early July. But obviously there was a long period before that where I literally didn't know whether I had a business to go back to. Um, and there were 16 staff with their livelihoods at stake as well. So it was a very frightening time for us. Certainly sounds it. Um, I'd like to start with some congratulations for 25 years in business. However, it's such a shame that it can't be in more fortunate circumstances. Um, And with everything that's been going on, even if we think of one, maybe two years time where hopefully by then we have a working vaccine and COVID-19 is no longer an issue. Can you still see some features of this lockdown period becoming almost a permanent part of the way that your sector is operating in this country? For example, staggered entrances, hand sanitizer stations everywhere, those sorts of things. Yes, absolutely. I think those things are going to be with us for a long time to come. Um, There is still a lot of people who are only just coming out now we're still getting people within the last week who said I've not been outside since March so it's going to take a long time to get that consumer confidence Um, but I think businesses have been incredibly adaptable and have put measures in place very quickly Um, for us really all our marketing almost our raison d'etre is geared to the opposite of what the guidance is you know we're a physical space Mm. where we want people to gather and browse and have contact with us. So we've had to definitely sort of put the social distancing and sanitizing in place. And, but fortunately we are seeing a return. People do want to get out and support the high street. So that's very encouraging. That's good. And it's certainly going to be something that's needed over the uh, the next few weeks as well. I mean, even though the prospects of that happening might be remote with the new restrictions that were announced by Prime Minister Boris Johnson last week, we are getting up to the festive season and it's this period of the year that the high streets often do depend upon. So it's an important time coming up. And 
what can you really sort of see happening over the uh, the next few months? Do you think it will pick up as much as it needs to? I don't think we can see a return to our business levels, um, certainly within our my sector, which is retail and hospitality. Not for really some time. I'm probably looking at perhaps Easter to summer next year, um, and that would be quite a confident forecast. But there is, uh, we're definitely seeing people want to return and want to come out and support local businesses. So that's, as I say, very, very encouraging indeed. Um, we're in a fortunate market that there's a, a, a fantastic flood of great product with new titles and authors desperate to get into the marketplace. And I think also people have realized that the importance of social interaction in their lives was so missing in lockdown that mm. that simple pleasure of going out and meeting a friend and catching up over a coffee, it's kind of become, you know, a very, very important part of their lives. So that's pe- what people are sort of flooding back to do. I suppose that mental health and well-being are very, very important, particularly within your industry. And it's been thrust back into the limelight of the national discussion by the uh, the pandemic, firstly, by the initial anxiety about um, health and also the um, the preservation of people's jobs, for starters, but then also the social isolation element of the lockdown as that's set in. The relief of that, getting to go out of the house and socialise, there's always going to be a need for that going forward. So how has it been for yourselves managing the mental health side of things, both in terms of the people that you work with and also the people who have tended to come into White Rose Books? Yeah, so this is really important because we have 16 staff on our payroll Some of them just do a few hours a week and some are doing a few days a week. And I try to keep in touch on a very regular basis through the lockdown. So by emails, we had a Zoom chat, um, by phone calls and made it just very open that they could contact me at any time. We had an incredible amount of support from our trade association, the Booksellers Association. And we were able to point people to the retail trust who offer a lot of support to people who work in retail. So that was fantastic. And I just kept an open door policy. Um, It's difficult because we're used to working physically with each other for quite long days at a time. And then in terms of the customers, we emailed out, we do a regular newsletter. So we try to keep in touch with them. Obviously, a lot of people come into us on a, a very regular basis and quite often on their own. And that interaction with their barista is you know a little highlight of their day and people coming in to talk to us about books so there was very little we could do for a while with that but as soon as we were back up and running with June in June we were able to welcome people to phoners or email orders and we started doing a few deliveries around the town and that's just really sort of built up since mid-June. That's certainly uh, good to hear um, as well and I suppose from a leadership point of view as well, when you're having to provide a lot of reassurance during this time and just keep people inspired and motivated amid all of the uncertainty and the worry, it can almost be a heavy burden on your own shoulders, can't it? So making sure that you've got time to sort of take stock and offload, take a bit of time to switch off, that can also be important, can't it? Because it can be quite a lot in the hectic world of running a business, even at the best of times. But at a time like this, it's a very different sort of uh, challenge and it is very mentally taxing. Yes, that is very true. Um, By nature, I'm a worrier. (laughs) And I did feel the pressure um, at the beginning 
of lockdown, uh, I knew that people were looking to me to um, see, see the business through this difficult time. So I felt the pressure, but also I'm a great believer that times of stress are times of growth. And it was important to just get as much support out in webinars. I was, I was looking at a lot of different le- webinars, did some self-development on social media. And I really benefited from a couple of online support groups both for booksellers and for cafe owners. And I think the growth of support networking online is um, is a fantastic sort of silver lining, actually, from all of this. So that was particularly helpful to me and sort of mm. kept me focused on um, the fact that so many people were going through this, so many business owners were going through it, and we were just there in a very non-judgmental way to help each other and access support. It can be very easy to forget that, there have been some positives in what's been a challenging and sensitive time for many. And that sense of unity that everybody's in the same boat together is one thing that's come about as a result of this. But also we've seen a lot of innovation within business during this time as well. Businesses have had to rethink their whole way of doing things. Some have had to sort of transition to working remotely for the very first time. And it's really held up its side of the bargain business and really tried hard just to keep things going and keep obviously um, providing um, itself with an income and to, to its credit it's I feel it's done incredibly well with all the odds stacked against it. Yes I mean we saw some really innovative work within the, the um, book trade actually where there were some independent bookshops that clubbed together to do um, a sort of at home with indies zooming authors across into people's households so we were able to sort of tap into that and let mm. our customers watch authors online, you know, for the first time using this sort of technology. Um, so, and then it's just trying to find creative ways of um, getting your sort of book groups together and all the things that we used to do that made us a bit of a community hub. It's been about, yeah, being creative and thinking outside the box really and encouraging people to get involved in perhaps slightly different ways than they used to. Mm, certainly technology's played a major part in that as well roundtable zoom calls have almost become a norm when it comes to trying to connect people with them each other during this time absolutely and um with regards to the future of the industry you say of course that you can see some of this lockdown period being in place for quite some time but can you see sort of a fundamental overhaul of the way that um hospitality and retail operates or do you think that it's sort of going to stay largely the same in the years to come no, I think um, from our point of view, there has been a, there's probably been a large um, adoption, a bigger adoption of online shopping um, during lockdown from perhaps people who hadn't used online before. And many of us have got to address our own web presences and, you know, have a stronger online presence. Um, we were a little bit caught out by that, as in many business, small businesses were. But that's nevertheless um, in hand. Um, I think it's just staying relevant, um, having a good focused team, you know, great products um, that people still want to come out to, to physical spaces. Um, I think there's a little bit of a sort of managing customer expectations now that, you know, the physical side of retail and hospitality, you know, is only open certain hours and can only be accessed certain hours, whereas the digital world is there 24 hours, Mm. seven days a week. And so, People need to almost make that choice, you know, which ones do they want to support and knowing when they can access the physical side um, of hospitality and retail and perhaps when 
um, they can go digitally. It's been a significant learning curve this period for businesses, hasn't it? And um, I think that it's really reminded us that within leadership especially, it's a constant process of learning and development. We never do stop learning and improving. And this has really forced all of our hands into trying a new way of doing things. Definitely. That's a, that's a really important part of leadership for me. Um, keep learning, keep improving, keep moving on. Um, you know, have a plan, you know, prepare for it, proceed with it and sort of persistently go for that plan and make sure that everybody around you in the organisation knows what it is you're working towards. Um, but I think the biggest learning curve for me is just it can be difficult, but don't be afraid to take tough decisions because those decisions are are needed. Um, and that's the best role model you can do to sort of protect the organisation overall. And of course, you've got over 30 years of business experience under your belt, not just, of course, running White Rose, but also um, with the blue chip um, FMCG background that you have prior to launching the business. But um, if you could go back to 1995, when White Rose Books um, first started, is there anything that you would do differently armed with the knowledge that you have now? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I was a very different person then I didn't have children I wasn't married so there was <laughs> a lot of different things in my life um I think it's important to um always have have this sort of welfare of your team around you at heart but I think the best thing is that you can do is never be afraid to ask for help I think when I first started I felt like I had to have all the answers and be this strong person at the at the helm and the biggest learning that I've had is that it's absolutely fine to ask for help and get advice and I think particularly in the business world that we have now you know compliance and asking for specialist advice and you know really sort of um, accessing that help is um, is vital goes back to what we said about learning earlier, doesn't it? And sometimes you have to um, just sort of hold your hands up and accept the fact that sometimes you have to learn from others and look to them for help. Because as leaders, we're not lone wolves. There are other people within the industry that we can look to, that we can learn from and share ideas with. And indeed, collaboration is one of the huge positives that's come out of this whole thing as well. Absolutely. Um, Again, from these online support groups, that's been fantastic. And sometimes that's helped me make better informed decisions and sometimes it's just been you know asking for that help and um, and learning from it and empowering empowering myself as a leader going forward yes and just thinking about the future before we do wrap things up on the program today because i'm conscious that we are running short of time um we know that we are going to have to adjust to the new normal as it's being called and I do that for quite some time yet it could well be in place of course until uh, the spring um but whilst that's all going on over the next 12 months what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at white rose books soon and where do you see yourselves being this time next year what do you want to have achieved so the main thing in commercial business is to try and um make a profit without a doubt but i think that's that's a lovely thing to have sort of going on in the background um, and it and is definitely a financial goal. Um, but perhaps the most rewarding thing that I would like to achieve is to have a really sort of strong, focused team feeling really empowered and sort of part of, um, you know, that they've got a stake in the business and that they're determined to sort of see things through. Um, I feel very confident about that. 
as I say, we've got fantastic products that we can sell and we're in a creative industry that has has really weathered so many storms. I mean, we went through the 2008 recession. Uh, we dealt with that challenge. We can definitely deal with this one. And I think by, you know, this time next year, we'll be looking forward to a very good Christmas trading season. Certainly do uh, hope so. Um, the industry really does need to uh, to be able to pick up over the course of the uh, the next year. And it's something that we'll certainly here be keeping a very close eye on as uh, the months roll by. And just given how enlightening it's been to having you come onto the programme to share your views today, I think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in this next 12 months and have you back on the show just to see how things are getting along. That would be great. I'd really enjoy that. Thank you. I would too. It's been a real pleasure welcoming you onto the programme today. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak in future, please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on because there are still a great many variables in all of this. And let's just keep our fingers crossed. We will do. Thank you, Scott. I would also reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners tuning into this today as well. Do please continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, it was a pleasure to welcome Sue Lake onto today's programme, co-owner and director of White Rose Books Cafe in Yorkshire. Coming up next on the programme today, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup Patrick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, during his professional football career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for clubs including West Ham United and Stoke City, among others. But he, may, he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition. That came after his treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. He'll be joining us to reflect on some of the highlights of his professional career, some of the key leadership influences throughout his life, as well as leaving a message of thanks for our wonderful NHS, who have been working so so hard during this very trying period. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. After a thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved uh, it would be someone like Harry who was a fantastic professional with with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I want England to be successful I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in in all sports and particularly in my sport so I wanted to bury it and I'll be absolutely I will be as delighted as anybody in the country 
um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my uh, my achievements about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three, in one sense, is, is uh, I wouldn't say material, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand, we all know what happened the ball nestled in the top corner England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before haven't you yes I think people um, I, I've I, I recall exactly what's amazing I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game I knew the game was nearly finished I, as the ball came to me initially I was actually with my back to goal I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms indicating quite clearly of course that the game was nearly finished so when I got to the edge of the box I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished I'm thinking if the game's nearly finished I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left but I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Tilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense, because the game is unfinished. But that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to... Uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making... This, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think 
it's it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, where there's enough enough funding for it, and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling... I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today... Um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, technically good enough to, to be around to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, 
But by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to out is then managed from a discipline point of view because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters and from all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an in, innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach or what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think like that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during Absolutely. your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or places very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It was a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so as three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making 
also with gliders and uh, nice guy, but just didn't, didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbor's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street. And uh, we were actually... But that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the... the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton on the line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence, going back to that third goal in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial w- with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I have one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egbert in um, in Liverpool, 
And I think I got Norton and Norton on out. I think so, I mean, we won the game. Funny, I filmed a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the V Lancashire up up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done with some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games for those two or three years extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23 24 games uh, no 27 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing a lot of videos of Banksy programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls and not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Mac, for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of, and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players We're along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton uh, Jimmy Greaves who didn't play was a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world-class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup some world-class players and Banks he was up there w- w- not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that 
Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it <laughs> And certainly my wife was fairly surprised when I, when I said I need her permission for, for me to, um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world-class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that and if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight, and uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to to stay with me. What he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was. He is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across, the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slight bit of ill-discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I'd compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham it was a great time at the club and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years and it was a fantastic time for that particular club they won of course the uh, the the League Cup before I went there mm. sadly they knocked us out in the semi-final so it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club and very close we actually I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax so it was a great time for the club so I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs only a short spell at West Brom of course but I think uh, as I always jokingly say I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then um, West Brom was a fantastic club but I, was, I wasn't was at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge then I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I've made very little contribution to that success that club had so um, yes it, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it as long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, 
two daughters, and my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a, I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's. I think the that kind of. Uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered, sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not so, so immediately after you've finished playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend, and, and I always joke and say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked, necessarily looks at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up to. I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management or management courses, but there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you're managing as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, when you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela in fact that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, that is very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the program this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career, and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the program in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy enjoy being part of the program. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. 
Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.